Would you do something for me, please? What do you want? What do you want? Just picture your life for me 30 years from now, 40 years from now. What's it look like? Stop thinking about what everyone else wants, what I want, what he wants, what your parents want. What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? What do you want? It's more than the question posed by Ryan Gosling. And yes, I did just open today's teaching with the notebook. What do you want is the question that gets us out of bed every single day. What do you want is what moves you through your life. Desire is the engine of life. You and I, whoever you are, whatever got you here today, we live our lives in response to the shouts of the little gosling within screaming, what do you want every single day? But the sad reality is, is when you and I begin to pay attention to the dynamics within our hearts, what we find is that what we want, our desires, are never actually satisfied. As we studied uh, last year ago, almost to the week, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the author says, The eye is not satisfied with seeing or the ear with hearing. No matter how much we get, it's never enough. You and I live with a pervasive inner disquiet, this chronically unsatisfied desire, or in the language of the writers of the Bible, chronic restlessness. Last week, we opened the teaching looking at the problem of chronic exhaustion. Today, the question of chronic ex- uh, restlessness. Chronic restlessness. It's an ancient problem, one that's rooted in our human nature. You and I, we are all bundles of untamed wanting, of wild desire, of longing and loneliness, of dissatisfaction, insatiability, of restlessness. But this ancient problem is manipulated by our modern world, a world of of consumerism, a culture of more, in particular into advertising that all attempts to monetize on nothing but your restlessness. And so this is why last week we talked about how the average American sees four to 10,000 advertisements every single day, and all of them are designed to leave you feeling restless, unsatisfied with the desire for more. And these ads work. Time and again, we get roped into a chase, whether it's more money, more clothes, more stuff, more square feet, more experiences, more vacations, more, more, more. But as all of us sitting here in this room know, it's never enough. In the words of the crown prince of advertising, Don Draper, what did he say? What is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. See, in the East, this is called the wheel of suffering, which isn't a religious idea so much as a, a, a thought per, uh, on the, the human heart. The wheel of suffering is this wheel of craving and aversion. You want something, and so you don't have it. And so you suffer in not having what you want. And so you undergo suffering to get what you want in the hopes that you do. And so you don't get it, which leads to more suffering, or you do get it, which just leads to even more suffering because now you're not satisfied by that and you want more. If you want a case study of this, let's just gather up anybody who owns a home in Los Angeles. That is how it works. What is held before all the, oh, you own a home? Oh, that's, the, that's it. That's when you've made it in L.A. is homeownership. And you talk to everyone in L.A. that got to that point, and they're all miserable. The to-do list is this long. There's always a problem. There's always a renovation or repair that's needed. It is the wheel of suffering. And the wheel turns again. And so the question of today is, is there a way off the wheel of suffering? Is there a way off the treadmill from hell of never enough? Or in more biblical language, is there a way to fight against the cancerous restlessness of our age? 
the chronic restlessness within our hearts for our deepest longings to be met and found and satisfied. Is that even possible? Yes. Welcome to week two of the Sabbath. As we looked last week, there are four movements in the practice of Sabbath. Stop, rest, delight, and worship. We're making our way through each of these. Last week, looking at the rhythm of stop. And this week on the docket is Sabbath as rest. With that being said, would you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And once you find yourself there, join me, please, in standing for the reading of the Scriptures. Genesis 2, verse 1. First, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through the scriptures today? Open our ears, open our hearts, our eyes. God, those areas where in this age of restlessness, it is far more comfortable sometimes just to stay on the treadmill that is exhausting, but it's at least what we're used to. And you invite us into this freedom, this adventure that is at times scary, but your invitation is that's the place of rest. And so we pray that today, Holy Spirit, speak through the scriptures. Would you allow it to meet the deepest aches of our hearts and to invite us into a new way forward? Genesis 2 verse 1 says, so the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Amen. You may be seated. And what we just read, after six days of work, on the seventh, God rested. The Hebrew word Shabbat, God's Sabbath. And as he did, he weaved into creation a rhythm for creation, a rhythm for you and I, a rhythm of rest. Now, when we hear the word rest, most of us think of sleep, we think of margin, we think of rest, and we think of a day off, a few hours of quiet, or maybe our couch, a TV, and some Thai food. But the idea, and I'm not here to go against that at all, but the idea of Sabbath rest is far more holistic. It is what Jesus called rest for your souls. That is, rest for your whole person. That's what Jesus is after. That's what Genesis, what God is portraying and inviting us into. So what is the whole self-resting that we see in Genesis 2? Well, first, on Sabbath, we rest from work. On Sabbath, we rest from work, all work, all work, not just paid work, not just our jobs, but on Sabbath, we rest from all work. And this includes chores, errands, and to-do lists because, like God, we take a day to stop working, creating, crafting, and ordering the world. We let all be as it is, and we rest in that place. Second, as Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel writes in his incredible book, The Sabbath, uh, the first year that I actually started Sabbath, I would read a chapter of the book every single Sabbath for about um, multiple times through. It's, it's, it's so good. But what he says is on Sabbath, in order for this rest to be truly holistic, on Sabbath we rest from even the thought of work. We don't just rest from work, we rest from even the thought of work. His insights reflected in science that tells us that when you think about work, even if you're sitting on the couch or you're at the beach, it produces the same stress chemicals in your brain as if you were actually in the office or eyes glazed over staring at the Zoom window. And so like God, we rest from work, both with our bodies and our minds on Sabbath. But third, on Sabbath, we rest 
not just from work, but we rest in contentment and gratitude. We follow God's example, what we just read over, where we look over the world, we look over our work, we look over our lives as they are, incomplete as they are, and we bless them. We say, with God, it is good, it is good, it is very good. With God, for 24 hours, we say, it is completed, it is finished, it is enough. And so in Genesis 2, what we looked at last week, God here is establishing a rhythm of resting from work, both bodies and minds, and resting in contentment and gratitude. This is the rhythm set up on page 2 of the Bible. But, but here's the sad reality to kick us off today. We don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live in a world where this rhythm of work has been disrupted, where this rhythm of life has been disrupted. We can account to this just talking about what we prayed about a moment ago, mass shootings within our world, or even for some of, um, for some of you in the room today that have been affected by layoffs over the past week. We live in a world where both the rhythm of life and even the rhythm of work has been interrupted. We don't live in a Genesis 2 world. We live on the other side of Genesis chapter 3. We live on the other side of what theologians call the fall. Big fun, it's not a big word, small word for saying that our world, that ourselves are not as they should be, but they have fallen from that Genesis 2 very good reality that was detailed for us. And so at the heart of all the brokenness and disorder that's going on in this world, at the heart of everything wrong, the story of Genesis 3 lays out for us was what? Humanity's deception by a cunning and dark spiritual being who advertised that what humanity had wasn't enough. At the root of all the brokenness and disorder within humanity in this world was a lie that humanity, who you are, isn't enough. What you have isn't enough. And at the root of it all, that God isn't enough. And so the advertisement was, you currently are not enough. God is not enough. What you have is not enough. But, but that by reaching, grasping, taking, and consuming, they could have more. They could be more. And what ends up happening is that they fell for this deception and that lie became a lifestyle of anxiety, painful toil, fear, wanting, and worrying. Humanity traded the tree of life for the wheel of suffering, believing that what they had wasn't enough, who they were as God's creation wasn't enough, and that God was not enough. And so they traded the tree of life for the consumption wheel of suffering, taking, grasping, and consuming in the search to be more. Now, you might ask, wait, is this an ancient Near Eastern creation account or an allegory for the modern world? Yes. As the ancient African theologian Augustine wrote, God, you have made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You see, we were made with those deep longings and aches and restlessness, but they were always meant to find their satisfaction in the creator who made us in God. And in a world that now comes along and manipulates that restlessness towards monetization, we live in a world of chronic restlessness, a world that disrupts that rhythm of rest. And so rest now, for those that are seeking to reenter that rhythm, is an act of resistance. Rest is how we wage war against both the lie and the lifestyle of more. Sabbath is how we return to who and what we are created for. To unpack this, let's Bible nerd out for a little bit. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. For those of you that may or may not know, the Ten Commandments are actually repeated twice in the Torah or the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. It's two Ten Commandments. There's 20, but they're the same, so there's 10. Now, What's interesting here 
is the Exodus Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, which we looked at last week, were given to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai after they had been miraculously set free from 430 years of slavery in the empire of Egypt. They get brought out by God's hand, and then there at the foot of Mount Sinai, they are given the Ten Commandments with the first Sabbath command. The second, Deuteronomy 5, which we're going to look at here in just a second, was now on the edge of the Jordan River right before entering the Promised Land. And between those two was about 40 years. And so the Ten Commandments given in Exodus was to the first generation, those who had just walked out of Egypt. Deuteronomy was given to the next generation. Deuteronomy was for those that were unborn or babies back at Mount Sinai that are kind of like, they hear stories about slavery from mom and dad, and they're kind of learning what it means to be the people of God on the other side of the generation outside of slavery. And so what's Interesting is these two Sabbath commands are very similar, but they hold two key differences. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. It says, Be careful to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a command to the Lord your God. Do not do any work. You your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your ox or donkey, or any of your livestock, or the resident alien who lives within your city gates, so that your male and female slaves may rest as you do. Verse 15, remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That is why the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So two major differences here from what we looked at last week. The first you'll see behind me is the opening word. In Exodus, on the other side here, is just the simple Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When we jump 40 years later into Deuteronomy, it is be careful to remember, or as other translations have it in just one word, observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So do you see the change in the language here? So what's going on? It's moving from remember to observe. It's the Hebrew word shamar. And it means to keep watch over, to care for, to guard or protect. It's what a shepherd does, what a priest does in a temple. And so in the same way that we observe a holiday, like Christmas or Easter, what do we do? If we ob we're observing a holiday, what does that mean? We're taking steps to make it special, to make it unique, to set it aside from the rest of the week. And so Sabbath here is likened to a weekly holiday that we are to observe, to keep to care for, to guard, lest it become just another ordinary day. So that's the first difference from remember to observe. The rest of the command is verbatim, all the same until you get to the end where you find the major change. Again, behind me, in Exodus, it's for the Sabbath command, you shall rest, six days labor, all that. And then the reason is, for the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in them in six days, then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Jump over 40 years. Remember that you were, past tense, slaves in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Do you see? Same command, but a whole different basis behind it. We might put it this way. In Exodus, Sabbath is grounded in the story of creation, the rhythm of God's world. In Deuteronomy, Sabbath is grounded in liberation, in the resistance of God's people living into and carrying out the salvation that God had won for them. 
Stick with me for a few more minutes here. We tease out the significance. Earlier in the Exodus story, during that 430-year span of slavery, there's a repeated theme of restlessness. Just a couple of examples from one paragraph in chapter 5. It says, Why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. You are stopping them from working. Make the work harder so that they keep working. And Pharaoh said, you are slackers, slackers. That's why you're saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. 400 years under Pharaoh. And the Pharaoh that they were under at this point in the story was a cruel tyrant. One whose restless and insatiable desires enacted restless and relentless working conditions for the enslaved Hebrew people. And so they lived under an oppressive yoke of harder, better, faster, stronger, to quote two musical robots. But more than just Pharaoh, more than just Pharaoh, it was the socioeconomic system of Egypt as a whole. You see, Israel's brick-making labor that was mentioned there in one of those verses was all part of Egypt's supply city initiative. Egypt was building out entire cities just to store all of Pharaoh and his rich friend's stuff. So here we have an economic system built on unjust working conditions, on slavery. And within this system, slaves don't get rest. They were seen as subhuman, a commodity be bought and sold. Their only value is in what they produced, and so they work all day, every day, until they died. At the heart of Pharaoh and Egypt's injustice and slavery was the lie and the lifestyle that by reaching, taking, hoarding, grasping, consuming, they could have and they could be more. It's the same story as Genesis 3, just new characters. But, as the story of Exodus continues, but rest is what comes when you've been set free, when you've been saved by God. So to Sabbath then is what we're getting here in Deuteronomy is to remember you aren't slaves anymore, that the Lord brought you out of there. To Sabbath is to remember that Pharaoh is on the bottom of the sea and that you are now a new kingdom people. You belong to a new king whose reigning edict is not more and slavery, but enough and freedom. And even more, this is the key. To observe the Sabbath is also to remember not just that you are no longer slaves, but to never become a slave driver yourself. This is why that Sabbath commands extends not just to you shall do six days of work and then you take a day of rest, but it extended to both male and female children, male and female slaves, immigrants, refugees, the foreigner within your city gates, even your livestock. And it starts naming all these different animals. All of creation is equal underneath the Sabbath command. All humans are equal underneath the Sabbath rest. As A.J. Swoboda put it, Sabbath is scheduled social justice a way of building into the calendar a rhythm where no matter what systems are happening within the world, there is rest given for all people and even all animals. And so Sabbath is a weekly reminder for God's people. You are not slaves. It's a reminder you are not slave drivers. It's a reminder that you and all people are the image of God and all of creation is worthy of his rest. And so as one rabbi put it, Israel kept the Sabbath, but the Sabbath kept Israel. Sabbath served as a first line of defense against both idolatry and injustice in the life of the community. As long as you're Sabbathing, it's hard for you to advance your idolatry or your injustice too far. It became a boundary, a fence, a hedge against all of this. But as later generations forgot Sabbath, they forgot who they were. 
And so they fell into idolatry and injustice, and in doing so, they slowly, over the course of the story, became just like Egypt. They became deceived into thinking that by reaching, taking, hoarding, consuming, they could have, they could be more. And in just a few generations, the liberated oppressed became oppressors themselves, the freed slaves became slave drivers as they became enslaved to more. And so to bring this now into our world, this is where we bump into one of the great design patterns of Scripture. Egypt and Pharaoh, like Babylon and Rome, are more than just real historical empires in the imagination of the authors of Scripture. They're archetypes. They're patterns for every restless empire of more down through time. And so that extends. Egypt is not just Egypt. Egypt also becomes Israel. And that means that Egypt is not just Egypt, but Egypt is Rome. And these are not just back then, but they are even here with us today. Egypt is not that far gone. Just consider first, here in the West, here in America, we work more than ever before. We work more than ever before. The Japanese have a word, kiroshi. It means death by overwork. And this is spoken to by kind of some of the stereotypes that we have around Japanese work culture. And yet, here in America, we work 137 more hours per year than the Japanese. We don't have a word for death by overwork. 260 more hours we work than the Brits and a whopping 499 more hours than the French. As Derek Thompson noted in The Atlantic, it's not just that Americans are workaholics. We are workists. Not writing as a Christian, he says, we as Americans are adherents of a new religion, a cult that promises identity, transcendence, and community under the creed, if you grasp, if you reach, if you do more, you can be more. We work more than any other nation in the world. Now, this is largely true of the older generations and maybe some of us type A personalities in the room. And for some of you, the problem of your life is not that you don't have too much work, but too much leisure. So here's, the, here's just the, the, the quick statement of this, because we're going to address this more in the coming weeks. We all need to remember in the Ten Commandments, it is not just you shall rest, but it is a good command with two parts. Six days you do the work and the one day you rest. Notice work is a good part of God's good rhythm. Notice that God worked for six days and then he rested. Work and rest together. And so if you only work, you'll grind your soul and others down into the ground. But if you only live for leisure, you will craft a cushy life, empty of meaning and significance. And as we see throughout the story of scripture, most often on the backs of others around you. But as a culture, the point stands, we work more than ever before. We work more than ever before. Second, we have more than ever before. Conservative estimates say that we now spend two to three more time, excuse me, two to three times more on goods and services than just 75 years ago. That our homes are three times larger, and maybe not in LA, and full of twice as many things. The average American home, the average American home has 300,000 items in it. And though we may not have supply cities, there are 2.3 billion square feet of self-storage space in our nation. Something like 7.3 feet for every person in our country. We could literally house our entire nation in our storage units. We could more than solve the problem of homelessness in our city with the space we set aside for our extra unneeded stuff and our Christmas decorations. 
Now add to all the physical more, the digital more. Then we have more music, more podcasts, Wikipedia pages, blogs, books, shows, movies, IMDb pages, social feeds, news sites, sports, and games than ever before. We have access to an immeasurable amount of entertainment and information. We have more than ever before. We're working harder than ever before, but we're unhappier than ever before. Here in the U.S., we diagnosed depression 400 times more than we did just 20 years ago. And we are on track this year to pass $16 billion on antidepressants, up 35% from just six years ago. We could go on and I'd cut a lot of it for time. You can find similar statistics for anxiety, for manic depression or bipolar disorder, for schizophrenia. It's coming to the point where psychologists and doctors are beginning to use language of epidemic. Sociologists tell us that happiness... Whoa. Let there be light. Can you guys hear me okay? Are you okay to keep going until it comes back? My iPad's on, so until this goes out. Okay, so what we have is, uh, oh, let there be light. See? Lorenzo got up and immediately came back. Well, while that comes up, we'll let it kick on when it kicks on. Oh, wow, that was quick. Okay, cool. Everybody's Okay. Um, I watched Glass Onion a couple weeks ago, so now when the lights go out, here we go. Um, So all that to say, we're unhappier than ever before. Um, and I, I, don't need to, I don't need to scratch this point too much. I think we all, we all feel this. The difficulty that we have, what's helpful with some of the statistics, is actually comparing it to what, what people were experiencing before us. We just have kind of normalized this. Right? So sociologists looking over the history of our nation and the emotional health of our nation, what they have found is that happiness levels peaked here in the West in the 50s and since then have been in a steep decline. So if as I'm saying some of these numbers, you're like, oh, but the pandemic or, you know, whatever, these kinds of things, totally, that didn't help by any stretch. But we were well on our way into this trajectory before that. So what they found, though, like I said, was we hit a peak in the 50s and then a steep decline began. Now, interestingly, interestingly, that's right around when blue, blue laws, which required businesses to shut down on Sundays as like a nationally permitted day to worship, if that's what you're into, but to rest and be with family, those were all phased out. So we lost the blue laws, at least some space for maybe a secular form, at least of Sabbath. And since then, we've been in this decline. So just hear me. This is worth saying. I'm not saying that anxiety, depression, or mental illness can be solely remedied by you start taking a Sabbath. But I don't think it's hard for us to see or to feel some deep correlation between these two truths. We're unhappier than ever before, and we're we're exhausted. And so to sum up, we work more than ever before, we have more than ever before, and we're more unhappy than ever. Welcome to Egypt. Welcome to the empire of more. And the struggle is, and I get it because I live here with you. I'm not from another planet. I get it. It is so easy here to say, well, that's just how it is. That's just that's the world that we live in. That's the way the economy, that's the way the world works. But hear me, it doesn't have to be this way. It was never meant to be this way. And there is an invitation of God on your eyes' life into Sabbath, into a way of knowing and seeing that rest is an act of resistance. Rest is an act of resistance. When we enter into rest, it's an act of defiance to the Pharaoh of our time, to the tyranny of more. It's a way of saying with your body, soul, mind, and strength, enough. Enough work. Work is a good thing. It is not the thing. 
enough stuff. Stuff isn't bad, but most of us have far more than we need. Sabbath is a way to break the addiction to the twin pharaohs of the West, accomplishment and accumulation. The twin gods, the twin pharaohs of the West, accomplishment and accumulation. And so this is why in the Old Testament, there are Sabbath commands against buying and selling on the Sabbath. It's not a day for accomplishment and accumulation. And so in our home, we try to follow this wisdom to not shop or do anything that would make us want more, to not even talk about what we want more of on the Sabbath day. We seek to be grateful just to be, to enjoy the goodness of God in our like actual life as it actually is. And so practicing this over the years has uncomfortably, uncomfortably revealed my enslavement to accumulation and how effortlessly my conversations slide into what I want, what I don't have, and what I feel like I need. I just remember a couple Fridays ago, I kicked off Sabbath, and Aaron and I were sitting outside of like a little fire pit, and we're just sitting there, and uh, we, we just, the conversation starts shifting into like landscaping ideas. I call it landscaping. We live on a plot of concrete. It's like <laughs> literally putting plants, like, like this would work here. But even there, we're just sitting there, and, and it was like we went for like five minutes before I realized what was happening. I was like, oh. Here I am, Sabbath day, my chance to stop, to be, to delight in what I have, to be thankful for my little piece of concrete. And yet, what is it? More, more, more. And so if you were to listen into our home around Sabbath, you would hear the repeated line tossed back and forth between Aaron and I, some form of, not today, we have enough. Not to do in a shameful way of like wagging your finger at the other, I caught you wanting, not to do that. But just as a gentle redirect, oh yeah, that's right. We have enough, we have enough. So just hear me, accomplishment and accumulation are not evil. They can even be good, but there has to be a limit. At some point, you need a line in the sand. You need that Gandalf to Balrog moment of like, you shall not pass. <laughs> you need something that acts like the, like the governor to, like, like to your, your, oh my goodness, I just had a story that came to mind. Okay, we've, oh, uh-oh, the timer went out. I don't know how long we're going. All right. Um, if it goes too long, we'll, we'll, we'll get lunch for you guys. No, um, this story just came to mind. I, I worked at a summer camp, um, and we had these golf carts that we would drive around to move like rec toy, you know, noodle, pool noodles and stuff for games. And to get up and down this hill, we um, kind of messed around inside the guts of this golf cart, and we took off the governor. So the governor is this little thing that keeps your golf cart from going faster than it should, Right. And so we were like, oh, we'll take this off. We'll be able to drive up and down the hill much faster on the fields. And it was awesome for a couple of uh, years. Literally, we came back. We did that uh, two years in the summer. We came back. We're driving up the hill one day, and it starts smoking. And we get up to the top of the hill, literally just open to the open field where, like, all these, like, little kids are playing. And it starts smoking, catches fire. The whole golf cart burns down into nothing but like this ashen heap of like, you know, a little motor and pieces of plastic. The story just came to mind. We need, we need a governor. We need something that goes, you know what? Golf carts aren't meant to go that fast. We need something that says, you know what, human? You don't need that much. You don't need to work that hard because I don't want to burn out. There's, there's, oh, there's the connection there. We need that line in the sand. We need that governor. We need that moment where we say, you shall not pass. When we say, I do not need to work more hours. 
when you say, I do not need to make more money. I don't need a new car. I don't need a larger house. I don't need a yard. I don't need a picket fence. I don't have to make that position. I don't need to work up the company to this. I don't need another pair of shoes. I don't need a stamp in my passport or another Disneyland visit. I don't need a new iPhone, a new TV, new console, or whatever gadget. I don't need to watch every show, movie, game, or listen to every album or podcast everyone is talking about. I don't need to know everything happening in all of the world all of the time. I don't need to look younger. I don't need to look more beautiful. I don't need to have less wrinkles or flatter abs, as great as that would be. I don't need the perfect grade. I don't need perfect kids. I don't need a perfect apartment or home. I don't need to have my kids in soccer, taekwondo, and ballet all year round or at all. I don't need to earn my father or my mother's love and approval. In fact, I don't need to earn anyone's approval. My line in the sand is, through Jesus, I already have all that I need from my heavenly father. And so I no longer am going to be defined by my successes or my failures, by my lackings or my havings. Thank you. We need, do you hear me? We applaud, but this is it. You are not what you do. You are what Christ has done for you. You are not what you have. You are who has you. You are not what you know, but you are who most intimately and deeply knows you. The hair is on your head kind of know it. You and I are no longer slaves to accomplishment and accumulation. You have all you need to thrive in God's world. We need a line of the sand that says, I am set free from the more of accomplishment and accumulation. Ronald Rollheiser writes, true restfulness, true restfulness is a form of awareness, a way of being in life. It is living ordinary life with a sense of ease, gratitude, appreciation, peace, and prayer. He continues, we are restful when ordinary life with God is enough. We are restful when ordinary life with God is enough. Now, all of this sounds beautiful and you may applaud, but Sabbath is an act of resistance. It is an act of war. It's a prophetic act against the world. And so when we practice Sabbath, what we're doing is we're just taking all of the truth that I just said and actually living it out in our bones. But when we do that, it will not come easy. We will face resistance. The first is that we'll face external resistance. To Sabbath well will require intentionality, preparation, and determination as we go against the stream of the day. To live differently, you and I will face external resistance. Sabbath will not be easy. You and I are standing against what Paul in Ephesians called the principalities and the powers. Theologian Walter Wink defines the powers in Paul's letter to the Ephesians as both heavenly and earthly, divine and human, spiritual and political, invisible and visible. In this fallen world, on the other side of Genesis 3, there are forces that keep us and others from Sabbath rest and from God. Systemic racism, sexism, greed, political corruption, all of these and more are animated by dark spiritual powers that are all anti-Sabbath. They are all anti-rest. They are all anti-God. They are all anti-image of God in each human. They are anti-life. They are all rooted in that same deceiver who first made his advertisement back on Genesis 3, and he continues to work out his pitch. If you crave, if you chase, if you have, if you do more, you can be more. And so Sabbath is it's an act of spiritual warfare. Rest is prophetic protest. In the 1840s, 
As the urban pace of life in Paris began to quicken with industrialization, there arose a prophetic protest against this new pace of life that was coming over France, coming against this new form of culture, and it was in the form of the flaneur. Those of you who speak French are going to chastise me later, so I apologize. The flaneur, or it's uh, translated as the stroller or the idler. So here in 1840s Paris, you know, car, all this kind of energy is beginning to happen. What the stroller, what the flaneur would do is they were known for taking turtles for walks like dogs. Put on the little leash and they would just let the turtle set their pace. Excuse me. And, and the whole point was just by doing that, it became this disruption to the sidewalk around them and, in fact, to the rest of the city. Just by their not entering into the pace of the city, it was a form of protest. Just by slowing. Sabbath is walking the turtle. It's a way of taking on a new pace of life for your life that just by doing it will be a protest against the way that we live. And so we disrupt the powers, not just when we rest, we start walking the turtle, but when we also grant rest to others. Just consider this week, think about areas of justice or generosity or hospitality. All of these are, among other things, simply when we're spreading the gift of Sabbath rest to others who may not have it. Justice, generosity, care for the poor is us extending the rest of God to those facing restlessness and a relentless life and bringing some reprieve to them. And so here, first and foremost, through Sabbath, the external, res external resistance. We defy, we resist, we prophetically protest the devil and the spiritual and systemic powers. We align ourselves with the kingdom mission of the Lord of the Sabbath. And so we have to, we have to prepare that that's what we're walking into when we, when we seek to Sabbath. But second, more difficult, I would say, is we also face internal resistance. Because here's the thing, Egypt isn't just out there, it's in here. To Sabbath, you have to resist the Pharaoh within. I love this in Leviticus, as God repeatedly says in the book of Leviticus, it is a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you must practice self-denial. How many of you, when you were like, let's do like synonyms for Sabbath rest, self-denial is like the first one that you came up with? None of us. But what's going on here is through rest, we begin to resist the Pharaoh within. We deny our fallen self. We deny that part of us that is chronically restless, sprouting up in the form of greed, envy, jealousy, comparison, anxiety, addiction. Through Sabbath, we, we begin to deny that part of us and come back to the deepest parts of our souls. As Gary Bashir is uh, my professor and mentor, who I th the plan is that he's gonna be joining us again uh, later on this year. As he regularly says, our loudest desires are not our deepest desires. Our loudest desires are not our deepest desires. Through the Sabbath, it is an opportunity to begin to silence the screaming desires within you that feel controlling, compulsive at times, and to begin to return to, to hear, to bring to God those deepest ones, to find those again. Oh, this is what I want out of life. This is who I am. But to resist the Pharaoh within requires discernment because often Pharaoh will disguise himself as something good. I'm speaking as an experience here, as one of the primary points of my needed Sabbath resistance in this season of my life comes in preparing for this. I regularly will give late evenings and even at times my Sabbath evening to crack open the laptop, to write, research, and edit just a little bit more. 
Now, I could easily justify that it's good works, that it's like it's Bible stuff. It's like, I'm not like, you know, I fill in the blank with whatever like bad thing I could be doing. It's spiritual, it's Bible stuff. Or I could, you could justify and say, oh, it's for the word, it's for others. But here's the truth. If I stop long enough and ask what's going on here and that need to just edit and work a little bit more, it's the same old lie. That in God's hands, what I have isn't enough. Who I am as God's son isn't enough. That God's spirit at work in our gathering isn't enough. And so I must do more to earn my rest. And so I say this to just exemplify the sort of challenge that you will face when we seek the Sabbath. You will find little things that will come up as reasons to this chore or this activity or this thing. And, and there are gonna be good times when out of a step of love for others, your Sabbath may look different. But when we get into a rhythm of something like this, of compulsivity, the odds are there's something, there's a work that we need to do. There's an idol, there's an attachment that needs to be attended to. And so I say that just to share the challenge that you're going to face over the years of entering into Sabbath, but also to open myself up to audit. So next time it's like, that sermon, Ryan, <laughs> like, well, how many hours did you give to that one? I'm opening myself up to that. Because I would rather have a restful, godly, healthy pastor to give you on not just Sundays, but all week long than like some really killer sermons for three years and then I die. <laughs> I'm not gonna die, well, sooner or later. Um, so here, just hear me here. To practice Sabbath, we, it's, it's a practice in self-denial. It's to name and uproot the lies of the Pharaoh within. And hear me, hear me, hear me. Not in order to free ourselves, but because in the words of Paul, we've already been freed. Paul writes in Galatians, you'll see behind me. For freedom, Christ set us free. For freedom, Christ, past tense, set us free. You have been set free through the work of Jesus. Stand firm, resist then. Don't submit. Don't be burdened again to a yoke of slavery. You see, Sabbath is not the way that we free ourselves from the slavery of accumulation and accomplishment. The reality is you and I have already been set free through the work of Jesus. And the introduction of Sabbath is you saying, standing firm, lying in the sand, I'm not going to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Sabbath is an act of resistance. And so, as we move into the coming week, begin to land the plane, we have three exercises to add to your remembering and observing of the Sabbath in the week ahead. Three exercises to add on. The first for you is to prepare for the day. In the New Testament, the day before Sabbath was called the day of preparation. And so here's the thing. This just comes out of the wisdom. You really do need a few hours, if not a day, to prep. Sabbath is not just going to happen. It's too countercultural. If you go with the flow, you're going to get sucked right back into Egypt's current. And so the first exercise, which will be easy for some, harder for others, is to set aside a little time, either the night before or the afternoon leading up to Sabbath, and prepare. A few recommendations for you. One, go grocery shopping, stock your pantry and fridge, fill the car with fuel. The whole point is that we're not shopping and doing, we have enough. So that takes preparation. Uh, prep and plan for your meals. If you're like me and cooking is incredibly restful to be in the kitchen working with things, then plan meals that are a delight for you during Sabbath. If it's a chore and you hate cooking, plan a big meal that leaves lots of leftovers for the next day. Or just get like an extra pizza for leftovers for the next day. We, we did that this weekend. Um, next, clean or tidy your home or apartment. Finish all housework. Or figure out how to hide the housework so it can wait until after Sabbath. That happened with laundry this week. We were just like, I was going to fold those, but it didn't happen. Yoink, into the closet. Like, we'll see you Sunday. 
Uh, next is run any errands, pay any bills that need to be sorted, uh, answer texts and emails so that you can truly disconnect and rest and not like, oh, grandma's waiting to hear back from me. Is that just me? No? Okay. Um, make plans to meet your family or community on the Sabbath. So I've just found, this is like the super trick, I feel like, to Sabbath. It feels like it's like, you know, black belt level Sabbath thing, is when you coordinate plans for Sabbath during the week so that like when you wake up, you know, on your, or your day, you, you've already got your plan. You're just like, I just got to show up. Like, I, I didn't do that this week, and it was just such a thing where I was like, oh, I have a few hours. Uh, who wants to go here? Like, it just like, I hope someone shows up. Like, I guess I'll just be there. And it worked out. It was great. Thanks to those of you that came and hung out with me. But the whole point is there's just a joy in having things planned out and not having to coordinate. You're coming over to dinner. Do you want wine? Am I bringing salad? Like, what's for dessert? Do that on Wednesday or Thursday, and then you just get to, like, everything's taken care of. You get to show up. Uh, plan out some fun activities for playing delight. So your first exercise is just prepare for the day. The second is to prepare for external resistance, like we talked about. In the lead up to Sabbath, pick one to three this week, cultural forces to say no to for 24 hours, to move from wanting and worrying to contentment and gratitude. So a few examples. Uh, the first would be your phone, and with it, social media, the internet, TV and entertainment, shopping, social obligations, sports, weekend work, chores, and errands. Just think through a couple of these. And then finally, people, uh, which might seem strange in a, in a practice that's meant to lead us into community. But here's, here's the point. Sadly, often one of the greatest challenges for Sabbathing for many of us is people. It'll be a boss, a coworker, a family member, or a friend who attempts to sabotage our Sabbath. In the, his book on Sabbath, Dan Allender recounts after he had been diagnosed as pre-diabetic and after seeing the impact of diabetes on close friends and wanting to like stave that off, he gave up alcohol, sweets, and all starch. And as he began to walk back through his life, he found friends and acquaintances regularly questioning his decision of total abstinence. Why not moderation? Not just one drink. You have to have a bite of this chocolate. It's just that good. He writes... I didn't take into account the level of resistance we face the moment we choose a course of action that bucks the trend of what others consider to be normal. Or better said, he continues, we, excuse me, when we choose a course of action that exposes the lack of health in others, we can expect to be bombarded with temptation and at times even contempt that questions our motives and sanity. And so knowing that there's an external resistance that may come in others, just in your preparation, just worth considering, how will I deal with Sabbath, Sabbath sabotage attempts with love, gentleness, and humility, not like some kind of like legalism or shame, but just holding up to our boundaries, lying in the sand with love and gentleness and humility. And so it's your choice. Identify from that list just a few cultural forces that are anti-rest and then resist. And if I might challenge you, lean into the ones that when we went through the list, you rolled your eyes at. Or you were like, well, not that. <laughs> There's likely something that's worth examining there. There's something that the Spirit is inviting you into. And so I would, I would encourage you to lean in. Third exercise is not just to prepare for external resistance, but internal resistance. A time to uproot and name the lies of the Pharaoh within. And so on your Sabbath, do a simple prayer exercise. You'll find it in the companion guide. And you can do this either journaling alone or in conversation with a spouse or a close friend. And so the questions are that you work through, what am I feeling today? And then in the companion guide, there's a whole list of emotions that make it really easy to just like that one. And then you ask, what attachment is under the feeling? 
An attachment is an emotional state of clinging to something we believe we need to be happy and safe. In the biblical language, it's an idol. So for example, moving into Sabbath, you may feel anxiety over a relational conflict with your extended family, and that's because you are attached to, you idolize their approval or opinion. Or going into Sabbath, you may feel anger at a coworker because you're attached to certain outcomes of your career. So just to name the attachment and then feel that feeling, whether it's good or bad, whether it's unpleasant like sadness, boredom, fear, anger, hurt, loss, be gently present to it. Breathe that feeling in and out. Don't run from it. Just let it roll over you. And then offer that feeling to God in prayer and just release it to God. You can do this in words or just, just through a posture of holding your hands open. God, I give it to you. And just say, God, I invite you to do with it what you please. And then wait for him to speak to you. See if a word or phrase, an image or a line from scripture come to mind. As God's word to you, write it down and just go about your Sabbath. And so those are the three exercises this week that we're adding on to our remembering and observing of the Sabbath. And so prepare for the day, prepare for internal and external resistance. All of this and more can be detailed in our Sabbath companion guide at collectivechurch.com slash current series under the exercises for the Sabbath heading. In it, you'll also find three reach exercises for those who want to make the most out of this season. So you may continue in Dan Allender's book on the Sabbath. You may listen to a supplementary episode from Practicing the Ways Rule of Life podcast or as a stretch exercise that you may want to take the deep dive this next week and practice a digital Sabbath. And so what you'll do is if you want to, is you'll turn off all your devices, including your phone, for 24 hours or at least for a good portion of your Sabbath, whether that's like, you know, your dinner Sabbath meal and to noon, you know, the following day. So those are the reach exercises. You can do one, two, three, or none of these. They're merely supplements alongside this week's exercises. And so like with last week, between your Sabbath and your next discipleship group gathering, make sure in the companion guide there's a little reflection. Once again, we don't just change from experience. We change as we reflect on our experiences. And so fill that out. Bring that to your discipleship group for reflection and discussion of the weekly Bible passage. To get very practical, for some of you that are like, what do I do at discipleship group? We just, you know, we started or we're brand new or something. If you meet for about an hour, spend 15 to 20 minutes each on your past week's Sabbath reflection, discussing the weekly Bible passages, and then your plan for your exercises with some time at the end to pray. And if you're not in a discipleship group, and this sounds fun or just interesting, and heck, you'll give it a go, the QR code on the back of the chair is how we can help you get connected to one. So, there we go. Now is the time for us to move into response, to not just hear what God's speaking to our community, but to respond and to allow him to meet each of us in that place. And so as we move into that time, a final consideration just to carry with us in the next few minutes. In a world that says you are what you accomplish, in a world that says you are your job, in a world that says you are what you accumulate, you are your possessions, and that you not only can but must do and be more, Jesus, once again, like last week, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. I love Jesus' invitation. He calls, he, he is high bar sometimes where he'll say, if anyone wants to follow me, you know, they must die to themselves. But Jesus is that first introduction into rest. He says, all you have to do is come to me. Just come to me. Come to me and find rest and no longer being defined by what you do, but being defined, being identified by what I've done for you to find rest in no longer being valued by what you have, but just to find rest in the fact that I'm holding you, that I have you. 
And so collective, everyone here today, you don't need to continue in that enslaving lie and lifestyle of laying your life down to achieve rest. Here's the good news today. He already laid his life down for you. The rest earning work has already been completed. It is finished. You were slaves and you've been set free. And so over you and over your life, no matter what mess that entails, Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Let's pray and move into this time of response.